This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, the Tom Hartman Program, Moyers and Company, The Young Turks, Activism from Best of the Left, The Majority Report, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. So there's this word, a kind of technical word, that has been at the center of the explosive public debate over NSA spying, precipitated by the Edward Snowden revelations. Right around when the first news leaked of bulk call record collection, Kieran Healy, a political scientist, very cleverly showed just how powerful this sort of abstract-sounding word really was. Using a few lists of different organizations and their membership at the time of the revolution, the American Revolution, Healy was able to produce a fairly simple map of social relations that showed that a fellow by the name of Paul Revere was more or less the most influential rabble-rouser in all of Massachusetts and likely to be up to something not quite kosher from the English Crown's perspective. Now, for months, the president and his allies have argued against, again and again, that metadata, which is the word that we use to describe this kind of data, that metadata collection isn't much of a privacy threat because the NSA isn't listening in on your calls. They're just looking into who you talk to and how long your calls are and what's the harm in that anyway. When it comes to telephone calls, nobody is listening to your telephone calls. What... Uh, the intelligence community is doing is looking at phone numbers and durations of calls. They are not looking at people's names and they're not looking at content. But by sifting through this so-called metadata, they may identify potential leads with respect to folks who might engage in terrorism. Well, today's news brings us a blockbuster story from the newly launched website The Intercept that shows just how powerful metadata really is. The NSA is using metadata as, quote, the primary method to locate targets for lethal drone strikes. In other words, metadata is being used right now by the United States government to target people for killing. As in, don't worry, they're not listening to your phone calls, they're just running an algorithm to determine whether they're going to blow someone up. Quote, in one tactic, the NSA geolocates the SIM card, or handset, of a suspected terrorist mobile phone, enabling the CIA and U.S. military to conduct night raids and drone strikes to kill or capture the individual in possession of the device. Which means that we, as a country, are right now targeting and killing individuals without knowing for sure who the person we are killing is. Because we are literally targeting SIM cards and blowing up whoever's attached to them. Joining me now, Jeremy Scahill. He just started up a new digital magazine called The Intercept. He's also writer and producer of the film Dirty Wars, which has been nominated for an Academy Award based on his book by the same name. All right, Jeremy, so I, I think I understand that basically what, what you're saying in the reporting that you have in The Intercept today is we are actually targeting SIM cards. The thing that we are targeting, the thing that we're going after and sending a drone strike at is a, is, is a cell phone, essentially, and a chip inside a cell phone, as opposed to this individual who's 27 and we know trained here and there. 
Right. We have a, a new source, Chris, who worked with the NSA and actually was a drone operator for the elite Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC of the U.S. military. And he said, you know, people get hung up on this idea that we have a kill list, but actually it's not a kill list. It's a list of either SIM cards or uh, um, numbers that are associated with handsets. And so when the U.S. military or the CIA are targeting individuals, they don't necessarily know the identity. They just know that they're targeting that phone or that SIM card. And it's a system rife with errors. And, you know, just to, to emphasize the point you're making, which is a good one about metadata, uh, you can have a, a, a scenario where these, the, there's these so-called signature strikes where the U.S. doesn't actually know the identity of a person they're intending to kill. They just know that their phone has been in a certain location, right. has called other phones on the watch list, or has been you know, in a mosque or at a particular restaurant. So it's, it's, it's rife with errors so, and opens the door for, I think, a lot of the civilian deaths we've seen. Yeah, that, that I think there's a, there's a whole variety of issues whenever we talk about the, the, the targeted killing program in terms of moral ones and constitutional ones and legal ones and efficacy, but let's just narrow in on this narrow question, which I think is, I think everyone, there's a consensus that no one wants to see a completely random waiter at a restaurant blown up by a warhead that we sent because he happened to end up with a SIM card that was calling the wrong people. And that is the question here, right? If we don't know who the actual person is, it does seem like there is a, quite a lot of open space for error there. Exactly. I mean, we're sort of in this era, this era already of pre-crime where you have President Obama in office. His advisors know that if there's another major attack on the U.S. homeland, that he's political toast. And so what they've sort of done is go way overboard in trying to preempt any potential attack against the United States. And what they've done is instead of sending actual U.S. operatives on the ground, which would constitute human or human intelligence, they're relying 90 percent or more on what's called SIGINT or IMINT, signals intelligence or imagery intelligence. And so what we have are strikes being authorized on the idea that we believe that this phone or this SIM card is associated with someone who right. is up to no good. And if you think about it in the context, this could come back at home very, very quickly, not necessarily in a militarized drone strike. The president says he's against that, but in using it to target individuals in the United States based on our cell phone. What if you lend your cell phone uh, to someone else uh, and you happen to be in Yemen? You send your kid to the grocery store uh, to pick up something, and that's the moment the CIA decides to strike. Right. I mean, this, this is a system, and we've heard from insiders, Chris, who have been a part of this and defend the program to the extent that it has taken out people, but they say, look, the potential for errors means that we should put a pause button on it, step back, and look at how this is essentially death by metadata. This there is a, another report in the AP today, four anonymous officials basically saying the U.S. is currently contemplating a, a targeted killing action against an American citizen. This story was strange to me for a number of reasons. One, why are they talking now? Two, what is the purpose? And three, it seemed to, to kind of bury the lead, which is that we've already done this. I'm not quite clear what would be new here. How did you react to that story? Right. I mean, as you know, because you've talked about this probably more than almost anyone on corporate television, you know, President Obama has admitted that the U.S. has killed uh, four U.S. citizens in a drone strike, uh, the most prominent, Anwar al-Awlaki, this American citizen. Uh, to, to me, Chris, politically, this indicates that the White House has already made a decision that they're going to kill another American citizen, and they're sort of floating a balloon out to the American public. This raises very, very serious issues uh, about the constitutionality of the drone strike program, whether or not uh, the U.S. believes it can kill its own citizens with without even charging them with a crime, where the president has sort of emperor-like powers, should be something that our courts should take up very, very quickly, and that should be the subject of much debate in Congress, and not just from the Rand Pauls and the Justin Amashes of the world. Right. It should be something the Democrats should actually pay attention to.
Glenn Greenwald has published a new piece working with NBC News, interestingly, discovering that there is this... Remember when Richard Nixon, I, many of you are not old enough to remember, but you, you've uh, in all probability read about it or heard about it, when Richard Nixon had his... Uh, he had the plumbers, he had his dirty tricks department, uh, you know, Don Segretti and these guys, um, uh, Chuck Colson uh, and company. Uh, these These dirty tricks guys... They're, what they did basically was they, they put phony stories out about people, they trashed people's reputation, they got the IRS to investigate people, they tried to blackmail people like Martin Luther King. Uh, I mean, the, 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 uh, J. Edgar Hoover was apparently involved in that. Uh, he had audio of King apparently having an affair and was trying to blackmail him with it. King wouldn't have nothing to do with it. Um, said, go ahead, I don't care, make my day. Um, but, there was, there was a, in some cases, successful, you know, COINTELPRO, uh, COINTELPRO sometimes it's called, uh, which was the, basically, you know, let's, let's do false flag operations. Let, let's basically propagandize the American people. Let's, let's define our enemies and take them down. Let's define our friends and build them up, and let's do it in the media. And from Nixon's enemies list, in fact, several members of several people on his enemies list, they aggressively went after in ways like this. All of this stuff back in the early 70s provoked Frank Church, Senator Frank Church in 1975, to convene an investigative committee or provoked the Senate to authorize Senator Church to convene an investigative committee, uh, which met in 1975 and 1976, to look into these abuses by the Nixon administration and make some very, very specific recommendations. And, you know, basically enough is enough. right? And, in fact, there's just this great quote from a Senator Church and his committee about what they were discovering. He went on MSNBC's uh, Meet the Press in uh, August of 75. And he said, and I quote, in the need to develop a capacity to know what potential enemies are doing, the United States government has perfected a technological capability that enables us to monitor the messages that go through the air. Now, that is necessary and important to the United States as we look abroad at enemies or potential enemies, but we must know at the same time that that capability at any time could be turned around on the American people, and no American would have any privacy left such as the capability to monitor everything, telephone conversations, telegrams, it doesn't matter, there would be no place to hide. And then Frank Church went on to say to the American people, I don't want to see this country ever go across that bridge. I know the capacity is there to make tyranny total in America, and we must see to it that this agency, he was talking at that time about the uh, CIA, and all agencies, the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA, which at that point, uh, the existence of which was illegal to disclose. And all agencies that possess this technology operate within the law and under proper supervision so that we never cross over that abyss. That is the abyss from which there is no return. End of quote. Well, what, what has been released by Glenn Greenwald is that uh, GCHQ, which is the British equivalent of the, the National, uh, National Security Agency, the NSA, 
has a dirty tricks group. It's called the Joint Threat Research Intelligence Group. And according to Greenwald, and I quote, among the core self-identified purposes of JTRIG, JTRIG, are two tactics. One, to inject all sorts of false material into the, onto the Internet in order to destroy the reputation of its targets. And two, to use social sciences and other techniques to manipulate online discourse and activism to generate outcomes it considers desirable. And then he talks about some of the tactics that this group boasts about in these secret documents that Ed Snowden released. They include, uh, you know, quoting from, from JT Riggs stuff, false flag operations, this is where they post material on the Internet and attribute it to somebody else. Fake victim blog posts, pretending to be a victim whose uh, reputation they wanted, uh, you know, a victim of the individual. Oh, so-and-so, you know, he's been stalking me or whatever. And posting negative information on various forums. There was this top secret presentation that was put together that Snowden released to Greenwald some time ago, and Greenwald went public with yesterday that JT Rigg, the joint, the joint Threat Research Intelligence Group, would leak confidential information to companies and the press, post negative information on appropriate forums, and actively try to stop business deals and ruin relationships. They had uh, honey traps. This is where they would, they would trap somebody using sex, using uh, presumably prostitutes. They would write emails and texts to family, friends, and colleagues of somebody pretending to be them and damaging their relationships with family, with friends, and with colleagues. I mean, this is like really creepy stuff. Frank Church, as I said, he said, I don't want to see this country ever go across that bridge. That's the abyss from which there is no return. I know there's capacity to make total tyranny in America, and we must see to it that this agency and all agencies that possess this technology operate within the law and under proper supervision, so we never cross over that abyss. Well, friends, we apparently have crossed over that abyss. So the question is, how do we dial this stuff back? Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that allows you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. And where Squarespace really shines is in their focus on design, because all their fancy features would mean nothing if they weren't designed well, right? And the latest example of this is the new feature they've just launched targeted at users who use Squarespace to build websites for their businesses. And so they've created what's called the mobile information bar, which is a simple little bar that appears at the bottom of a screen when someone visits your website on a mobile device. And the bar just includes all of the critical information that customers would need access to, your address, email, phone number, business hours. And it, this is a really small example, but it shows the depth of thought they put into the features they design because they thought of exactly what customers needed most from your website as a business and when they would need it and then built a great way for them to get exactly that when looking at your website on a mobile screen. So with that in mind, it's no surprise to learn that the other big news coming out of Squarespace recently is that they've been nominated for four Webby Awards this year, including their mobile apps, web services, and specifically for their visual design and aesthetic. 
So if it's time for you to find out what all the fuss is about for yourself, getting started with Squarespace is easy and free for 14 days. Then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT. That's just L-E-F-T, which gets you 10% off your purchase. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. Just when you thought you were about to sink below the surface of the sea of mass surveillance, that bottomless ocean in which we now swim, there comes a lifeline. This book, Dragnet Nation, a quest for privacy, security, and freedom in a world of relentless surveillance. Written by the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Julia Angwin, reviewers have praised her work as eye-opening, thought-provoking, and disturbing for its insights into how closely we're tracked by the electronic eyes and ears of not only government, but corporate spies. It was inevitable, says Julia Angwin, that these twin big brothers would become inextricably linked. Neither can exist without the other. So it is, we're living in a dragnet nation, a world of indiscriminate tracking where institutions are stockpiling data about us at an unprecedented pace. Julia Angwin covered the tech beat for the Wall Street Journal for 13 years, wrote the book Stealing My Space, and is now an investigative journalist for the independent news organization ProPublica. Welcome. It's great to be here. You've given me the best list of bumper stickers that I could put on my car to alert people to this digital age mm -hmm. surveillance. You say it's a, it's a chilling list. You can always be found. Yes, right. Your phone is sending out a signal which locates you at all times, unless you don't have it with you. You can be watched in your own home or in the bathroom. Correct. Hackers are getting much better at taking over control of the camera on your laptop computer or your regular computer and spying on you in your room. You can be impersonated. Right. This is what people call identity theft. I call it impersonation because you're still you. You've just been impersonated for fraudulent purposes. You can be trapped in a hall of mirrors. This is when everything you see online reflects your previous searches. So you see those ads for everything you just looked for, and Google is tailoring its results to who they think you are. So all you see is a reflection of yourself. You can be placed in a police lineup. This is where the police are watching everybody, and even though they're not suspects. And so essentially, they're looking for clues that you might be a suspect. So you're basically in the lineup until you can prove your innocence. What's happened to the Fourth Amendment that's supposed to protect the rights of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, such as you have just described? <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, the Fourth Amendment protects the actual physical walls of your home. And so, in fact, the police still need a search warrant to knock on the door and come in. But the problem is technology has reached into our homes in other ways, and essentially there's an exception to the Fourth Amendment for that. There's something called the Third Party Doctrine, which is a Supreme Court precedent that basically says once you give your data to a third party, whether it's a bank, the telephone company, then you have lost your privacy interest in it. And so the police can get it there. Well, nowadays, our papers and effects that we used to store at home, we basically store outside the home at these digital right. places, Google, even our online banking. And so then there's a much lower standard for the government to get this information. I was struck by the realization in reading your book that while Europe doesn't have a Fourth Amendment, 
they have stricter regulations of data mining than we do. How do you explain that? Well, Europe has a diff totally different approach, which is they view privacy as a human right. And they offer everyone this baseline privacy, which is basically, if there's data about you at one of these places, you have the right to see it. You have the right to correct it, and sometimes you have the right to delete it. And it also limits the company's desire to collect that data, because then they have to pay the cost of giving access. So, and we don't have that law, and we're the only Western nation that doesn't have so that, a similar type of law. So what's going on? I mean, has technology made Swiss cheese of the Fourth Amendment, or uh, is it fear of terror and terrorists, or is, do we simply concede in America that corporations' interests come first? I think it's a bunch of things. Like, first of all, we can't ignore the fact that we want everything for free. <laughs> okay, so we also have to take a little bit of blame on ourselves. We want all of our technology for free. We used to pay for software. We used to buy it in boxes. They were in the stores, shrink wrapped. Do you remember that? And it cost $60. And now we get it all for free. But we're realizing we are paying in another way. We're paying with our data. And so we have, to under, we have to maybe decide to make some different choices for ourselves. But at the same time, our laws are outdated. And all of the big tech companies have been advocating for um, some reforms about the fact that it's easier for the police to open up your email than your postal mail. What's it going to take, though, to make us move in that direction? I mean, did the Snowden revelations, were they a real wake-up call, do you think? You know, I can't tell yet, because the weird thing about the Snowden revelations is they continue to dribble out. 1.7 million files, and only a relative handful have come out so far, I think. Yeah, and I think what's, um, what's happening is people are sort of overwhelmed by the flood of information. Every week there's a new story about what, uh, what is the NSA or the GCHQ, which is the U.S. or British spy agencies, what are they tapping? And we've seen some pretty shocking revelations that they're getting every single domestic call in the U.S., that they're tapping the cell phone locations overseas and sometimes in the U.S., that they are stealing people's address books, that they're breaking into Google data centers. So it's been a shocking amount of revelation. I feel like we're still absorbing it. Did you learn something from Snowden that you hadn't come across in your traditional pursuit, dogged pursuit of journalistic uh, revelations? I knew the government was coming to these companies with secret orders from the secret FISA court asking for data about their customers. I did not know that at the same time the NSA was coming to the front door, they were climbing in the back door and hacking into those companies' systems. For instance, breaking into the Google Data Center, or they were intercepting the traffic that your Angry Birds app would send to an advertiser <laughs> while you're playing the game. And These were things I, I hadn't envisioned them going to those lengths. The companies have objected, have they not? Aren't they beginning to protest yes. finally this collusion that was tacitly taking place? It seems like they themselves were surprised about the amount that was being broken into in their traffic. And a lot, a lot of the big tech companies are taking measures to encrypt their traffic, to put in much bigger barricades so that it's harder for the NSA to get in. Something of a catch-22 there, because as you write, government data are the lifeblood for commercial data brokers, and government dragnets rely on obtaining information 
from the private sector. I mean, it's a real yeah. yin and yang. Right. I mean, a perfect example of that is your voting records. So when you go to vote, you have to give a bunch of information to the government. Name, address, birth. Sometimes birthday, political affiliation. It can be comprehensive. And then the states sell those lists. To? To commercial data brokers who add it to the list that they buy commercially, like which magazines are you subscribing to and which uh, catalogs are you ordering from. And then nowadays they add internet stuff. What do you doing online because they have found ways to finally merge all this stuff and the files that they create are very robust and sometimes the government buys them back in order to do counterterrorism investigations or to send mailings to their campaign constituents. Do you think people know that's taking place? Does your reporting suggest people know No, it? people seem to be surprised every time I <laughs> mention this or write about it. And that is what is shocking about this industry in general. The data brokers in particular are the, among the least transparent. In my reporting, I identified two, more than 200 data brokers who had my information. I could only, only about a dozen of them would let me see it. And less than half of that would let me opt out. So they are one of the least transparent industries that I'd come across, actually. What kind of companies were collecting your data? All kinds of companies are collecting my data. In the data broker business, there are uh, who, people who sell my name and address and actual voting records and all that. Those people, uh, there are the big ones who compile it all on the back end, like Axiom, um, Info group, and then there are the ones you look online. If you've ever Googled yourself, you might see them show up. They're selling your data. There's a Spokio, Intellius, all of those lookup sites. And they do a very big business in selling your data, and unfortunately, your data sells pretty cheap. In your reporting of government spying, did you find that all this surveillance is making us safer? No, so that was a really interesting part of my reporting, which was, I thought, okay, let's see, maybe this is really worth it. Maybe we're going to find out that we're really safe. So I looked at all the literature about government surveillance and crime and how much does it work. And what I found is it's not particularly effective. So cameras on the street, there are studies that show they are either as effective as streetlights or less effective than just having more streetlights. So essentially, you could have better lighting to sh make the criminals show up on the street or you could have the cameras and doesn't, it's not clear that it makes a difference. And in some controlled studies, the cameras made no difference to crime at all. Then what I found is that when you move away from the street-level policing to the counterterrorism policing, which is where they take these vast data sets and try to look for clues, that in fact the track record is, track record is even worse, right? As we have seen, um, after the Snowden revelations came out, the National Security Agency tried to justify the mass collection of data by saying there were 54 different cases that had contributed to thwarting. But in fact, the case that they held up as their best example was one that was really just solved by legwork of FBI on the ground, trailing a guy actually in a car, like in a very old school way. One thing we do know is that almost every time there has been a successful or quasi-successful terrorism incident, there has been information about those people in their counterterrorism databases, the Boston bombers, the underwear bombers. They had all been flagged at some point. And it makes you think that there's too many people being flagged because they, they haven't been able to follow up on all of them. Well, you quote one of the experts who created the computer code for the National Security Agency in the first place, Bill Binney, who says the agency knows so much it can't understand what it has, that all this data is making it dysfunctional. Yes. 
Right. And he makes a very compelling argument that they would do better to focus on the known bad guys and the people that they talk to, which is a narrower slice of data, than collecting everything and then trying to figure out where are the bad guys. And I think anyone who's tried to sort through their, even just their own email inbox would agree yeah. that data can be overwhelming. What I'm particularly concerned about, and I think actually what Bill Binney is particularly concerned about, is that you have all these agents and who are spy agents who are supposed to look through this giant amount of data, but there are abuses, right? There are people who look up their ex-wives and who look up information that they're not supposed to look up about people they're just interested in. And that's what, unfortunately what happens when you have a secret system with no oversight. Often, abuses can be hidden. Look at this. It is rare when we have good news to report to you. And especially about the Obama administration and the NSA program. What is this? How could this be happening? But it's true. And I'll tell you how it's happening at the end of this story. Uh, it turns out President Obama has a new proposal. Now, he needed one by March 28th. That's what he'd promised in January. And uh, that's when uh, they had to finish the reviews. And it turns out his new proposal is actually very good. Let me quote the New York Times here. Under the proposal, data uh, about Americans' calling habits would stay in the hands of phone companies, which would not be required to retain the data for any longer than they normally would. So now this needs a little deciphering so you understand. Normally, they could hold data for 18 months. That was federal law. Now, George Bush initially, when he uh, told the phone companies uh, that the NSA was just going to take their uh, phone records said that they would take him for five years. Now, when George Bush first did it, it had no legality whatsoever. So wildly illegal and unconstitutional. There's no question about that. In retrospect, in 2006, when Bush was still in charge, but a lot of Democrats went along, they said, all right, we'll make it legal in retrospect. And then you thought that Obama would get rid of the program because he had all those placards about change when he first came in, but he didn't. He kept the program. And they would collect all the phone records from all the companies and keep them for five years. Now, we found out because of Edward Snowden that was the case and that they were collecting records on all of our phone conversations, all 300 million Americans. And then since he got in trouble for that, he said he would reform it. So the reform has begun. So good. It's no longer five years. We're back to 18 months as it used to be. And NSA doesn't get to keep it. Let me explain further. The government will no longer systematically collect and store records of calling data. Now, this is also important for another reason. Since Now, could they access it from AT&T, Verizon, et cetera? Of course they could, right? But that's okay, because if you think you got a bad guy, you do want to be able to access the records from AT&T and Verizon, as long as you actually have information and evidence against the bad guy, right? Now, if the government uh, collects it from all the different phone companies, well, they have this one big database on all of us. But if the phone companies keep them, well, then it's dispersed. There's no central database. AT&T has those records. Sprint has those records. And it's hard for one person to pinpoint a political enemy, for example, and to try to track him down. 
Now, again, if you have evidence of a bad guy, no problem. You're going to get a warrant, and then you're going to be able to track him down all you like. In fact, New York Times says, it would obtain individual orders, meaning referring to the NSA, from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to obtain only records linked to phone numbers a judge agrees are likely tied to terrorism. That's the most important part here. It's no longer the executive branch saying, ah, I'd like to spy on that guy, and my check is the executive branch. That's not a check. That's not how our government is supposed to operate. We're supposed to have uh, checks and balances where the three uh, parts of government check one another. So in this case, you're going to get basically a warrant, like the Fourth Amendment says you have to get a warrant, right? So they're going to go back to a constitutional system, at least in this regard, and uh, and go to a court, and the court says, yeah, yeah, I think you got a bad guy. Go get the evidence on him. Great. I want you to get evidence on that guy. I want you to keep us safe. What I don't want you to do is spy on 300 million innocent Americans and do that in an unconstitutional way. You're going to bring it back inside the Constitution, I couldn't be happier. Now, look, there are still other parts of the program that are problematic. They do collect bulk data in other ways. And by the way, yes, uh, this does not address any of the things that they are doing online, which is perhaps even more egregious. But at least the phone program, they're getting back within the Constitution. Great news. Uh, New York Times explains further. They would also allow the government to swiftly seek related records for callers up to two phone calls or hops removed from the number that has come under suspicion, even if those callers are customers of other companies. Now, in the past, it used to be three hops. So they say, look, I got a bad guy over here, uh, Bob Smith, right? Uh, I want to see everybody he talked to and everybody that that they talk to, and then everybody they talk to. Well, when you go three hops, that's almost all the country anyway. <laughs> and maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but not by much. When you limit it to two hops, well, then you've got a much uh, narrower field. And by the way, I agree with two hops. I think that if you've got a bad guy and you've got evidence on him, maybe he's plotting something, should you be able to talk to, uh, see the records of the people he talked to and the people they talked to? I think that might be reasonable as long as you've got good evidence to support it. So I'm happy with that proposal as well. Finally, uh, the government has been unable to point to, uh, and I love this part of the article uh, because it explains why they had to change. The government has been unable to point to any thwarted terrorist attacks that would have been carried out if the program had not existed. So uh, this incredibly important program, both the Bush administration and the Obama administration told us for all of this time, and remember Obama's had this program for over five years now, is so important, so important. Well, could you point to a single case where it helped you stop terrorism? Nope, not a single case. Well, maybe it's important for other reasons, for you to track your political opponents or whoever it might be. So now, finally, since they couldn't point to any evidence and Snowden outed them, and they were embarrassed, well, and they faced some political opposition, by the way, both from the left and from the right, both libertarians and progressives, not establishment Democrats, not establishment Republicans to this day. Diane Feinstein, who was so outraged that the CIA spied in on her, is still perfectly happy with the old program that Obama had. And she's not sure she's going to agree to this new program that has constitutional protections for actual citizens. Okay, So establishment screwed us left and right on this. Okay, now Obama's bringing it back in because of whistleblowers like Snowden and the reaction that it got from actual libertarians and progressives. Now, Glenn Greenwald, of course, who broke the story, is going to jump in and make some good points. He says, the fact that the president is now compelled to pose as an advocate for abolishing this program, the one he and his supporters have spent 10 months hailing, is a potent vindication of Edward Snowden's acts and the reporting that he enabled. Well, it would seem to be hard to argue against that, right? Edward Snowden let us know about this, 
And that's why we changed the whole program. President Obama changed the whole program. Maybe it makes sense to let him back in the country. He was obviously a whistleblower, and he did nothing wrong. Uh, Glenn then goes on to say, first, the federal court found the program unconstitutional. Then one of the president's own panels rejected the NSA's claim that it was necessary in stopping terrorism, while another explicitly found the program illegal. Now the president himself depicts himself as trying to end it. Whatever tests exist for determining whether unauthorized disclosures of classified information are justified, Snowden's revelations pass the test with ease. I just don't see how you could argue against that. How can you say that this whistleblower who led to the president himself changing the laws to get it back within the Constitution is someone who's a wanted criminal and a fugitive and should not be allowed back in this country and if he comes back should be arrested? How could you possibly make that argument? Uh, I don't know about how the establishment feels about Snowden, and my guess is not very good. I know how I feel about him. If you weren't already convinced, this is obvious proof that he was, in fact, and continues to be today, an American hero. Anyone who can get any of our presidents to actually follow the Constitution has done something incredibly heroic. the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the USA Freedom Act. We've all signed a lot of petitions and gone through the motions of changing social media avatars and profile pictures to protest the obscene degree of data collection and intrusion into our personal lives over the past decade. Some of us have even taken to the streets at marches and rallies outside the offices of our elected officials, which means we're tired. In today's world, we all want immediate results. When that doesn't happen, it can be easy to move on to a new fight or simply become apathetic. Unfortunately, democracy demands we get up and stay involved. Sometimes democracy even appears to be working. The USA Freedom Act is a piece of legislation with, are you sitting down here? Bipartisan sponsorship and support. It is a comprehensive overhaul of the NSA spying program that repeals the surveillance state sections of the Patriot Act and FISA. The ACLU and Electronic Freedom Foundation are supporting it, and they're not alone. The USA Freedom Act is even supported by FreedomWorks, the national conservative group that helped launch the Tea Party. Those were the buses you saw at their rallies while continuing to fund Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck. I did warn you to sit down after all. While we laugh or cry at Beck and Limbaugh, they do have supporters both in the general public and Congress. If the mainstream GOP libertarian darling Rand Paul and progressive champions like Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy are all behind this bill, we should jump at the chance to push it through, even if a few of our allies make us cringe. Visit the Action Center at ACLU.org or click the link in the segment notes and enter your name and zip code to contact your legislators in under 30 seconds to tell them how tired you are of this unnecessary experience expensive, counterproductive intrusion. As the ACLU closes their plea for action, quote, let's make our representatives in Congress hear us. We won't tolerate our own government spying on us anymore. Let's win this fight. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. 
Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration The usual madness but not enough frustration About what's troubling Earth's nations The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days And it will not be your saving grace Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage With action Here's the sort of the backstory here The Senate Intelligence Committee did a report on the torture regime set up by the CIA during the Bush years. This report it was not released. It was found during the course of developing this report that unbeknownst and untold to the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, the CIA had done their own report on the torture regime and it had said a lot of different things about that torture regime than the CIA had said to the Senate Intelligence Committee. The Senate Intelligence Committee became aware of that report by digging through CIA computers uh, that the CIA had allowed them access to. Apparently the CIA was monitoring spying if you will on those staffers who were digging through this material that is not supposed to happen and apparently Diane Feinstein uh, finally saw the light what also and we will listen to these uh, three clips here what also appears to have happened is that the CIA attempted to intimidate those staffers. Let's listen to uh, clip number one. This is Diane Feinstein. And let me, tell, let me start by saying this. If you are part of the surveillance state and Diane Feinstein has a problem with you, then we should all have a big problem with you. She is not the first person um, to, uh, to get uh, how shall I say, agitated by this stuff. She very well may be, the, in fact, the last person, uh, short of John Brennan, who now has the CIA. What's that? Okay, so uh, this is clip number one, Dianne Feinstein on the floor of the Senate. This is a uh, speech that uh, Patrick Leahy said uh, may be the most important uh, speech given about uh, oversight of the CIA since the uh, Church Committee hearings. On January 17th, I wrote a letter to Director Brennan objecting to any further CIA investigation due to the separation of powers constitutional issues that the search raised. I followed this with a second letter on January 23rd to the Director asking 12 specific questions about the CIA's actions, questions that the CIA has refused to answer. Some of the questions in my letter related to the full scope of the CIA's search of our computer network. Other questions related to who had authorized and conducted the search and what legal basis the CIA claimed gave it authority to conduct the search. Again, the CIA has not provided answers to any of my questions. My letter also laid out my concern 
about the legal and constitutional implications of the CIA's actions. Based on what Director Brennan has informed us, I have grave concerns that the CIA's search may well have violated the separation of powers principles embodied in the United States Constitution, including the speech and debate clause. It may have undermined the constitutional framework essential to effective congressional oversight of intelligence activities or any other government function. Uh, so basically what she's saying is I sent you guys two letters saying, uh, wait, you've been spying on us? How much have you been spying on us? And uh, where do you get off spying on us? And she is here uh, suggesting that uh, there are at least, um, at least a couple of potential violations of the Constitution. And then she goes on to, um, to in this next uh, segment of the speech, to say there may be actually some other violations of the Constitution and statutory ones. Besides the constitutional implication, the CIA's search may also have violated the Fourth Amendment, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, as well as Executive Order 12333, which prohibits the CIA from conducting domestic searches or surveillance. Days after the meeting with Director Brennan, the CIA Inspector General David Buckley learned of the CIA search and began an investigation into CIA's activities. I have been informed that Mr. Buckley has referred the matter to the Department of Justice given the possibility of a criminal violation by CIA personnel. So um, Feinstein is now saying that uh, in addition to the uh, first mentions of the broad constitutional framework that may have been undermined here, there are specific amendments of the Constitution that may have been violated. There are statutory uh, violations, i.e., CIA is not supposed to be spying on anybody in America, never mind uh, lawmakers. And it would be sort of um, somewhat poetic that they were uh, caught up in uh, those um, uh, the statutes regarding uh, computer fraud. And then she goes on to say that the CIA's own inspector general has now referred this to a Department of Justice investigation, which she is making clear, I think, on the Senate floor, so that the DOJ does something about this. Because we know this is the, the turn-the-page administration. And we're not even talking about the original findings that are in the torture report, which in themselves may compel... And I would say it seems obvious now would compel criminal investigations. Why else would the CIA not want this report released? Here she talks about the other aspect of this, where the CIA is now actively trying to intimidate the Senate and their staffers Play clip three. I was also told that after the Inspector General reviewed the CIA's activities to the Department of Justice, excuse me, referred the CIA's activities to the Department of Justice, 
the acting counsel general of the CIA filed a crimes report with the Department of Justice concerning the committee staff's actions. I have not been provided the specifics of these allegations or been told whether the department has initiated a criminal investigation based on the allegations of the CIA's acting general counsel. As I mentioned before, our staff involved in this matter the appropriate clearances, handled this sensitive material according to established procedures and practice to protect classified information and were provided access to the Panetta Review by the CIA itself. As a result, there is no legitimate reason to allege to the Justice Department that Senate staff may have committed a crime. I view the Acting Consul General's referral as a potential effort to intimidate this staff, and I am not taking it lightly. So there you have her saying that this uh, whole attempt to uh, bring criminal charges or to imply that criminal charges could be brought against her staffers for doing their job uh, was uh, a, basically a means in which to simply scare them off of the trail. Who is the acting general counsel of the CIA? It's a guy named Robert Etinger. And Marcy Wheeler points out, uh, and uh, gives a hat tip to the uh, DOSX blog for identifying Etinger as the lawyer who, or one of two lawyers, who tacitly sanctioned the destruction of the torture tapes. You'll recall, back in the day, there were torture tapes. This is what um, the harrowing moments of, of senators and lawmakers going into a room and coming out and saying, holy crap. What have we done? Well, former CIA clandestine uh, branch chief Jose Rodriguez ordered the destruction of the tapes at that time. And he did so upon legal advice from agency lawyers Stephen Hermes, or Hermes and Robert Edinger. They didn't endorse the destruction of the tapes. They didn't say, go do it. But they said there was no legal impediment <laughs> to disposing of them. This is, this is also a guy who apparently was part of the counterterrorism center's um, legal team, perhaps, I think, the chief lawyer, and approved all sorts of tortury things to do to... Um, people that they were holding. So if there's anybody who's obviously interested in mitigating the release or what is in that um, torture report, it would be this guy. So this is just the beginning of, uh, of what we're seeing now. And Diane Feinstein, I mean, it's quite possible she was just engaging in theater, but that was fairly dramatic theater for someone under, you know, little obligation to do so as far as I could tell. But I guess the lesson here is, well, we spy on regular people. That's one thing. But when you try and intimidate my staffers, you've gone too far, sir.
One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions, so if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. What Dianne Feinstein was doing as recently as a month ago was defending everything the NSA was doing. She famously said it's called protecting America. She said to the media as she becomes the biggest defender of the NSA out there, right? Well, now, all of a sudden, it's come to light that she thinks the CIA is messing with her and her staff. It's very complicated. So let me just give you the Cliff Notes version of what she says happens. She's in the process, along with a bunch of the other people on the Senate Intelligence Committee, of investigating CIA activities during the famed torture period during the George W. Bush administration. The one thing that's come out of those investigations and that has leaked to the public, Feinstein leaked it not that long ago, actually, is that the torture and the black sites and the treatment of detainees was much worse than any of us were told. Okay? And as I've always said... It doesn't even matter, folks, because we've had rendition programs for years in this country that are worse than anything our own people will do. We will send you to a country that tears people's you know, eyes out of their socket and then say, we didn't torture you, but we had those people call us if they happened to learn anything when they tore the eyes out of the socket of the person we delivered there. I mean, we were sending people to Syria for a while, folks, which is crazy considering how the Syrian regime is something we're so against right now. We sent people to Egypt. We did all these kinds of things. So to worry about the CIA, you know, doing the things that they did on these black sites is a little hypocritical. Because you don't really, in my mind anyway, get any real moral distance from those activities by simply having some other person who's not American do it for you. I mean, to me, it's the same thing as having our CIA do it. If we send a detainee to another country that owes us a lot of favors and we tell them, torture them and tell us what they say. Maybe I'm a little naive, but I don't think that insulates you morally from or, or, or in a culpability sense. Uh, for doing that. So to me, it's a little moot. But for Diane Feinstein, it's changed everything. Because all of a sudden, she's the target of what the intelligence community is doing. And again, <sighs> rather than going into all the details of this, basically what Feinstein is saying is that the CIA is screwing with her and her staff. That they're trying to keep the intelligence committee, whose job it is to oversee all these activities, from really knowing what they're doing and that they're lying to her, and that they're hacking into her staff's computer and taking stuff off that. To make a long story short, and without going into you know confusing detail, she's basically saying that the CIA is out of control. 
This is not the first time, ladies and gentlemen, that that's happened. One of the things I hear from so many of you when I complain about this or that intelligence agency being out of control is you'll say to me, Dan, it's not like that anymore. It's not the days of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, Dan. You know, so any of those historical examples you use are not usable because things have changed. And what this just shows, folks, is that it doesn't change. And I don't mean it doesn't change because the CIA is this particular organization or the NSA is this particular organization. There's something about intelligence agencies that sort of encourages this sort of problem. You don't just see it in the United States. It's a bureaucratic, algebraic formula that if you get A and you get B, you often end up with C. When you have the secret government, folks, you know, doing things that only privileged people are allowed to know, over time it creates a culture that starts to resent the oversight at all. And we've talked about this when we talk about the bubbles that you find with specialists. All kinds of specialists. You can find it with teachers. You can find it with scientists. I mean, anytime you get groups of people together that are really you know, experts at what they do, they start to have a jargon all their own. They start to have a way of looking at the world that's all their own. They don't have a lot of people in the room with them that think fundamentally different than they do, so they're reinforcing their own biases. And they begin to think that they can't be overseen by people who are not experts like they are at what they do. If this happens long enough and it becomes enough of the established culture, you get the same kind of problems we're seeing with Feinstein right now. The stuff that the CIA is doing right now, folks, and that she's accusing them of doing, which, by the way, you should take with more seriousness than some other people because she's one of their biggest defenders is exactly the sort of stuff they were accused of doing during the late 70s. Same sort of stuff they were accused of doing during the early 70s. In a sense, folks, let me compare it to something that's a little similar to the intelligence agencies, but on a much smaller scale and a much more public scale, but police departments. I mean, those of you in many communities around the United States know of a local police department near you that's had problems, systemic problems. I always like to think of the one, and those of you in Los Angeles who are old enough, will remember the Signal Hill Police Department. Now, I've talked about that before. But the reason it's a good example is because the Signal Hill Police Department, which was just a little local, you know, Los Angeles area police department, had all kinds of problems. Minority folks would be arrested for small reasons and die in custody all the time. So eventually... People would get fired. I mean, it was very hard to get past the whole institutional thing, just like it is with the intelligence agencies. You would always have these police defense leagues and these hardcore law and order types who would say, you just don't understand how hard it is to be a police officer and blah, 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 blah. And eventually enough people would die that something will have to be done. And so they'd fire the chief or something or fire the, the chief and the, and, the, and the deputy chief and all this. And then lo and behold, after a certain period of time, minorities are dying in the Signal Hill Police Department again. Because there's a culture that goes below the leadership. Over time, people that think differently leave. People that think the same stay. They teach it to the new people who show up. And you end up with something where you really have to dismantle it from top to bottom to fix the culture. Which is eventually, after years and years and years, what they did with the Signal Hill Police Department. They got rid of everybody. But it took forever to get to a point where you realized that the institutional corruption 
you know, this mentality that was so dangerous couldn't be rooted out just by getting rid of this person at the top or that person at the top or this investigation or, you know, that revelation. You needed to burn it down to the ground and rebuild with all new people. Hi, Jay. My name's Jim. I'm uh, currently living in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I actually work in Michigan, so I listen to you on the road a lot of times. Anyway, so I just got done listening to your most recent trans episode. I don't remember the number, but it was April 10th. And uh, it was truly enlightening. And I just wanted to uh, thank you because uh, it's not a subject that I've been particularly comfortable with, and I think I've grown along with you in learning about it. Anyway, so thanks a lot for all the work you do, and especially on this particular subject. Bye. Hi, Jay. Matt from Michigan yet again, back on the gender topic. Um, I wanted to comment that I really enjoyed uh, the message left by, I think it was Chris from Rhode Island. Hey, Jay, this is Chris from Rhode Island. I, too, could be easily perceived as a straight white man, uh, and I do actually identify as queer. Um, as a matter of fact, I self-identify as a quote-unquote lesbian. I was identifying a lot with his message uh, right the way along. I was going, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of how I feel. Um, right down to, you know, enjoying wearing a skirt from time to time. And and even to the point of, uh, he said he identifies as a lesbian. And although I wouldn't go so far as to say that I identify as a lesbian, when he said that, I was like, yeah, totally. I get what you're talking about. And then he turned around <laughs> to soundly condemn me for claiming uh, to be queer when uh, he apparently thought that I wasn't. So... That uh, revealed to me just how badly I had misrepresented myself, I think, in my original message by uh, implying that um, I really just didn't like the term straight because of uh, political implications. Um, and that's not really the case. The way he put it was, uh, queer is not normal. And that's, yes, I get that. Um, and yes, you know, I, I had a dear friend who was telling me a story about her wedding and uh, this um, talking about this homeless transvestite who had showed up at her wedding and how some of her wedding guests had come into the building and been all concerned about this person who was hanging out outside and she was describing with with glee the looks on on these people's faces when she came out and saw this supposed homeless transvestite and went running over to give them a hug and i was thinking well this is a really funny story but god i think i would remember that i was at her wedding what is she talking about and then I realized she's talking about me. I had shown up in a skirt, and, and uh, it was a beautiful, warm day, so I didn't have a shirt, uh, no shirt on, and wearing this long, flowing, colorful skirt. Um, and, uh, you know, I got there early, and nobody was uh, really around, so I just kind of hung out outside on the grass and probably read a book or something. <laughs> and I had no idea that I had stirred up this commotion inside the church for all these people, like, oh, there's this strange person outside. So... Anyway, just uh, one little personal story as kind of a demonstration. Um, still, the other side of that is, um, although, yes, there are characteristics about me that 
uh, are, are gender nonconforming. I want to kind of scold um, Chris and, and other people who have really uh, kind of put the slap down on me um, for, for saying I'd like to identify as queer without giving the explanation for it. I shouldn't need to explain. Queer is an inclusive term for all nonconforming um, gender and sexual identities. And when it comes down to it, if you're really in touch with yourself, everybody's nonconforming. Nobody actually fits perfectly into that little box of straight cis. Um, identity that that is kind of the, the culturally accepted norm. Everybody has uh, uh, cravings for members of the same sex as well as um, other genders. Everybody has feelings and impulses that are more masculine and more feminine. Everybody is queer. That's uh, certainly my opinion. Um, and so I, I kind of felt compelled to sort of quote-unquote defend myself here. But at the same time, I don't think I should have to, uh, because uh, we should be receptive to um, people sort of acknowledging the, the variety and uniqueness of their own nature. Just my two cents. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Tori calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Let me start by saying that I love the show, and after a year of being a dedicated listener... I formed new opinions, let go of lifelong prejudice, and started paying attention to politics like never before. With all the positive things I've gotten from your show, there is one thing that has consistently bothered me, though. And your recent emphasis on the power of words prompted me to finally make this call. As a gay man raised in the South, I was taunted growing up with words like fag and queer. I'm now in my mid-40s, and to this day, I still find both of those words to be foul and offensive. I guess I wasn't paying attention and missed the word queer becoming some kind of badge of honor in the last 20 years. There's a lot of irony to me that while I despise the word and want nothing to do with it, there are straight guys calling into your show proudly proclaiming that they want to identify as queer. I accept that some people have found a way to make that word mean something positive, but much like other words that are used to disparage people, I personally believe that word doesn't belong in the context of the LGBT community. This is because of my personal experience with the word and the pain and humiliation it made me feel as a child. There are a few of us out there that remember that word as something that did not make us feel proud and part of a community. It made me feel alone and ashamed of who I was and, well, who I am. However, if there is anything I've learned from listening to your show, it is tolerance for the opinions of others. While I'm not sure I'll ever be able to hear that word and find anything positive in it, I'll do my best to applaud those that do. Uh, Thanks again, Jay. What you do is important. Please keep doing it. Hey, good morning, Jay. Great show, man. This is Professor Rambo from Georgia, like always, man. Um, Just got finished listening to your your, um, Dog Whistle Racism podcast, and you're listening, as always, agree with it about 99.999%, man. The only problem I had was when it comes to, I guess, that politics of respectability. You know, I'm a young young black male, and... um, I guess the problem I have with a lot of white liberals who are against, I guess, respectability politics is that they were raised in a respectability style, you know, home, taught morals, taught how to, I guess, quote unquote, behave properly in society. And thus they are now successful. And for, I guess, successful white liberals to then tell young black men, hey, it's okay to droop, it's okay to say, Yo, what up, nigga? All that kind of stuff. That That's not cool because, you know, as a white liberal, I'm pretty sure you're not going to hire somebody who comes into your office with his pants down below his knees, tattoos all down his neck, and who can't spell his name properly. 
you know, you know, you, you're not gonna have a smile like that because you're looking at him. That's not gonna look good for you know your company. It's not really gonna be a good look for you know to be here around you to kind of promote the message you're promoting. So whenever I hear, I guess, white liberals uh, down Don Lemon, down Bill Cosby, I just don't think it's I just don't think it's like a white person or especially a white liberal's place to down those black men who have got to where they got by hard work, by dedication by speaking proper English, by pulling their pants up. You know what I'm saying? I just think it's, um, I, I just think it's kind of, kind of productive, you know. Um, you would want somebody, in order for somebody to kind of go far in life, unless you're trying to be a basketball player or a rapper, you, you're not, you're not going to get a job, you're not going to get a job looking like Little Wayne, you know what I'm saying? Unless you're going to be a rapper or an athlete. And for far too many of us young black men, we're taught the only jobs we can have is we can either rap, or we can shoot a ball through a hoop. And a lot of us don't want to do that. So, you know, I love the show. Great episode. Dog with the politics is a real thing. All you got to do is just listen to an RNC speech and any educated person be like, oh, man, he's he, he pointing out black people right there. Oh, man, he's he definitely talking about a Mexican. But um, appreciate everything you do, man. Great show. Keep up the great work, man. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Uh, so, so I'm back. This is a brand new episode, the first in like a week because uh, I was moving. It took longer. It was more work than I expected. I, it took longer to get back into the swing of things than I thought. But I'm back, and uh, this this episode is actually being posted like... 12 hours late and but that has nothing to do with the move or the busyness or anything like that i i actually had uh just like to the cherry on top of the the moving sunday was uh, nearly catastrophic um technical problems while putting this show together so it just took a long time to get over that stuff and then uh, get back to work and and get the show posted i'm gonna do a bonus show where i talk a little bit about what went on and the problems that I had. It's mildly amusing. Um, so, so I'll do that. I'll, I, I will say that the NSA was, uh, sort of played a, an indirect role in the problems I was having. Uh, and then also in that show, I'll probably talk about how uh, race played a role in my move because, well, I mean, race plays a role in everything, but there's a story about race. So I'll, I'll touch on that. So if you're interested, bonus shows are for members only. Sign up for membership at the website, uh, and you'll hear all the behind-the-scenes uh, details of, of what was going on for the last week. But for now, I wanted to address uh, Professor Rambo and the idea of respectability politics. This this particular segment of uh, race and discussing racism is not you know what I'm an expert at, um, because I'm not an expert at any section of talking about race, but like this one I'm especially new to and and just trying to feel my way through. But I will I'll give just my thoughts on it, and then certainly hope that other more knowledgeable people will will chime in. But basically, he, he, Professor Rambo on on his call was saying, you know, it's it seems inappropriate for white successful liberals to be telling black people like, Hey, you know, it, you can do whatever you want because like to, to be respectable is just playing into respectability politics and you shouldn't have to do that. 
And my my take on the whole discussion is is very different than that. Not surprisingly, as a white liberal, I I don't see any discussions that I would put forward on the subject, or or really anyone I've ever heard being directed too much at at people of color. It, you know, it's it's not about telling people of color how they can or can't act or should act or whatever. It, it's actually directed at anyone who is putting forward the idea that if only black people would be respectable, then the problems with racism would go away because that's a lie. And so what, what was said on this show was basically the idea that if all people of color in the country acted exactly as respectable as you know, the white or black commentators, you know, Bill Cosby or Don Lemon or Bill O'Reilly, if whoever's saying it, if if all the people of color started acting exactly as respectable as those people are, you know, asking them to be, the problems of racism still wouldn't go away. And so that is my take on on what sort of the dismissal of respectability politics is, is that Hey, you're you're talking about something sort of unrelated, like dressing nicely and speaking nicely and and presenting yourself in a respectable way is is an issue that has no race relation to it. You know, people of any race do better if they present themselves in a way that is amenable to whoever they're dealing with. The idea of respectability politics is people of color as a group aren't as respectable as they need to be and that's their problem and that is the main source of their problem that that's sort of the argument being put forward and so to push back against that and say no that that's not really <laughs> the whole issue and you know to, to say that an entire group of people is not acting respectable enough is sort of offensive on its face and then missing the point in addition but I, I, anyways, like I said, not an expert on this particular subject by a long stretch. I would love to hear people chime in on it. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past.